Hello, 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 and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes live stream Q&A podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. We're here for a very special Monday episode, so we're starting the week off right. Um, but before we begin the stream, next Saturday, November 20th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, our guest will be TV writer from The Goldbergs, um, who's also a Disney ABC TV Writing Fellowship alum and a 2020 BAFTA Breakthrough Artist, Adip Desai. But today, our guest needs no introduction. I would assume everyone listening and watching knows him, or at least knows of him. He's been a regular on the show for a number of years now. So if you don't know him, check out some of our previous episodes together. Uh, he's a lit manager and producer. He's the head honcho at Bellevue. He's a friend, and he's a super mensch. He is John Zauzerny. As thank always, you, my friend. That's very kind of you to say. No, it's always, always great to chat with you I, as I was saying before we came on it often feels like you were just here and it also feels always like I haven't talked to you in forever so this is I know it's great to have you back so how's it going it's going pretty well <laughs> I mean it feels weird to say that almost two years into a pandemic right but, uh, yeah it's actually been I keep waiting for the slowdown and you know it is hard out there um, but we've been lucky enough to have a fair amount of success as a company mm -hmm. um, and for the clients, obviously. Um, so it's, it's been quite good. It does feel like, you know, with Thanksgiving right around the corner, it feels like everyone's sprinting. It feels like after Thanksgiving, people will stop working, which isn't right. true, but I think it does feel like people will be like, okay, now it's kind of like mopping up the end of the year. So it is kind of, you know, it is kind of an interesting time, certainly. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, I normally have a list of questions you've been on so many times. We've gone over no, we've every sort of, of about, sort of, uh, you know, management related thing. We do have people in the chat, which, you know, if you want to drop some questions in, we'll get to them. But before we do that, uh, so uh, I wanted to know if it's cool if I uh, mail some package to your house, <laughs> your unlisted <laughs> home address. If you do that, <laughs> oh. it's okay. Right. So yeah, let's was... let's talk about that. Let's talk right. about that. That became this, a thing on Twitter. I as, invented it just for this podcast, which was perfect timing. That's not true. Perfect yeah. timing. Uh, so uh, we'll maybe start off with this whole scenario and then get into some of the protocol in the industry, things you do and do not do. We've already had a conversation where somebody showed up to your office uninvited. Nice. Two different people showed up. Two different people, which is fantastic. But in this particular situation, they didn't show up. Instead, they. Yeah, and this was actually, I don't know, they were both pretty weird mm -hmm. uh, situations. But um, yeah, I came home from a trip and I uh, was going through my mail and there was a certified envelope. And I was like, man, I really hope this isn't what I think it is. So I thought it was a legal summons. Mm. I was like, what is happening? And then, uh, you know, opened, you know, didn't look at the contents other than to figure out that it was a screenplay. Unsolicited. Um, a, a letter in a screenplay mm -hmm. of somebody who had gone to the extent of tracking down my my home address, which um, I'm sure there are ways that you could pay to find that information or something. But it's certainly not easily. It's funny, you know. I posted about it on Twitter, and people were like, "Well, they don't know any better, and how can you get mad at someone for trying to shoot their shot?" But the weird thing is, like, if you didn't know anything and you're just trying to shoot your shot. First thing you do is like you Google me mm -hmm. and you find my company. And on my company, there's literally an, an, a general mail thing you could email at, right? Info right. at Bellevue Prods. Have you ever read and go on Twitter? I talk about this. 
but like that is it to find my home address mm -hmm. that person i was it was a strategy it was, a, it was a, in my opinion okay. it was like them going above and beyond and like i'm i don't play by the normal rules you know or something because it must have I mean, it'd be, I don't know how to find, I mean, other than asking you, I wouldn't know how to find your address. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are ways that you could do it by like paying for like a search or a sure. public record search or whatever. But like, why would you do that? Why, when there's so much easier ways to get in touch with people. So it's kind of weird. Um, people showing up, not great. I mean, in fact, my new comp, sorry, my new office, I should say, mm -hmm. um, when we moved, I took the um, mailing address off of the website and off of IMDb Pro. So it just didn't want anyone showing up uh, again, although then the pandemic happened. So it's not like we've been in the office a ton as it is. Right. So maybe people will still try to show up and I just don't know. Um, but um, yeah, it's just things people, you know, it's weird. They, they, they've, you know, I, I always go by like, how would you like to be treated? Which I guess for some people is maybe not, um, as some people don't care, but you know, how would you like to be treated? Act like a reasonable human being, you know? I remember one of the guys who showed up and he wouldn't leave. We had to call security on him. I was like, you can't do this. Like, this is not how you would want to be treated professionally. I mean, like mm -hmm. I told the guy and I was like kind of reason with him, which might've been a pointless endeavor. I was like, look, like I have to assess if people are professional. Like, is this how you would want someone to act professionally? Would you? And but he what they wasn't. He's like, I I need to, I came all this way. You have to talk to me. I'm like, that's just not how it works, right. you know. Um, I have other things going on at the time. In fact, I had another meeting walking at the door that I had actually scheduled, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, we're also we've talked about this a lot, Kevin. Where it's it's not just about your writing talent, your talent is important, but your professional conduct, because, you know, talent is good. That gets you in the door, but who you are and what your attitude is that gets you the jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and the people, and I don't just represent people, those people represent me. And if someone simplest answer would be, if you had a friend and you're like, and you had that, set that friend up on a blind date with another friend, that person came on and was obnoxious and terrible and insulting and jerky. Right. Then it would reflect poorly on you. The other person would be like, why did you set me up with this person? They're terrible. You know? Right. You know? And so, you know, the people that you surround yourselves reflect upon you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that's for me, I, you know, if I'm going to rep someone, I want to know that they are, are going to act in a, in a professional manner. And I've had to drop people in the past when they acted in ways that I didn't personally feel were professional you know, um, in terms of, you know, going around me, scheduling things, you know, I had a client, a former client who's, I, you know, he like, I had set him up on a couple of meetings um, over phone, um, this is a number of years ago, and he came to, so he didn't live in Los Angeles, he came to Los Angeles without telling me, which I think to some degree might have been he was meeting for a job that maybe he didn't want to commission me on, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But it, he didn't tell me that much, I can say. Right. Um, and then um, he scheduled a meeting with a friend of mine uh, who's actually a very prestigious uh, producer now. Um, and the friend called me afterwards and was like, oh, by the way, I met with this client of yours. I'm like, he's in town? He's like, yeah, it was really weird. He brought like a friend of his to the meeting, but it was kind of like abrupt and random. But like, <laughs> I don't know, it was weird, but it's fine. Like, whatever. And I, and I called up the client. I was like, why did you meet? I didn't know you were in town. Why did you mm -hmm. meet this meeting? And the client and the guy like this was his excuse he was like yeah well you know i got confused between him and this other guy this other executive i'd set him up with and the other executive had an office on the warner brothers lot 
And he's like, I want my friend to see the Warner Brothers lot. And so did I. So I set a meeting with this guy thinking we'd have the meeting on the lot. But then he scheduled it with the wrong person after oh. all of that, you know? And I was like, what, you scheduled a meeting behind my back with someone I introduced you to with your buddy just so you could get it. You could walk around the Warner Brothers lot. And then you didn't even manage to get that part right. <laughs> um, and so it just that felt like a violation of yeah. someone that I introduced him to. And he was he wasn't acting like a professional screenwriter. He was acting like a weird tourist of time, right suppose, right you know i mean if he had told me like i'm going to town and you know i i i probably would have been like i can get you the meeting but i don't don't bring your friend that's weird right you know? but that's not how but again that's not how professionals act but he was not acting in the capacity of a professional he was acting in the capacity of i guess a tourist or something i don't right. know yeah i mean we often talk about the professionalism involved but we also always talk about it's a relationship business it really is yeah. and i think that if listeners and viewers out there are watching this if you think about the initial meeting uh the the interaction between you as dating so if you send someone an email right like let's say you found someone you thought was attractive on the school directory and you right. email them and they didn't respond to you so you show up I mean, at this their. Is, this is online dating, Kevin. This is. I'm sure many women can speak to this. Oh sure, men. but then you show up at their door, at their dorm, or you you send them a note to their home address, which was not on the thing. They're going to be creeped and weird, creeped out and weirded out. That's not how you behave, right? Um, yeah, it's where people feel like that. It's weird. I, I actually think. I mean, I'm sure people do awful things when it comes to dating or trying right. to meet people, sure, yeah. celebrities or whatever. It's not isolated to this. Yeah. On the regular, but mm -hmm. like there's this weird thing that people feel like um, anything, there are no boundaries right. when it comes to um, you getting your dream. As if like somehow, like, again, you're right, Kevin, because you're thinking, you're thinking the delivery method does matter, right? Because it reflects upon who the person is. Mm -hmm. But the people who think this way are always like, well, the screen, like this guy, I mean, most people on Twitter are actually pretty cool about it, but there were a number of people who were like, why don't you just read it? The person went to all this effort, you know, maybe they're the next Preston Sturges or something. Right. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, I mean, here's a general rule. If someone doesn't know how to how to like act in a professional capacity, they probably don't know how to write in a professional capacity because they haven't done the work necessary to get to that. Point, mm -hmm. You know, um, so, you know, that's what I've generally found, you know, is that because, you know, being a professional screenwriting isn't just what having talent. It's also what knowing how to read the room, how to collaborate with people. You know, there is a degree of social awareness that is important. And I've seen it be an issue for clients in the past when they don't know how to have a good meeting or how to talk to other people. And, you know, I mean, look, if you were talented enough, you Charlie Kaufman, you can kind of overcome it, but it's hard and it's a hindrance. And I think anyone involved in the screenwriting industry, you know, or in the film industry or TV industry in general would speak to that. I mean, forget about features in TV. If you're in a writer's room, it's all about that. Right. You know, it's all about being able to work well with other people and collaborate and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's huge. And I think it's, it's an element that doesn't get talked about as much because you can really always see what's good on the page, mm -hmm. but who a person is and how they are in a room, that's almost, that's very, that's almost impossible to kind of measure um, right. arbitrarily. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a great person and super likable, super collaborative, you can get by being a good, maybe not great, but good writer. I've but seen I, it happen. But I think if you're a weird, eccentric, 
you have no, you don't understand boundaries. Broke, yeah. Yeah. Th- then I think you got to be Charlie Kaufman. Good. You've got to be absolute genius. You can't be great. Even you've got to be unbelievably unique and, and super uber talented to, to even get a shot because people will just avoid you like the plague otherwise. And if you have, st- you know, one or two failures, like if you're, if you're causing problems and you have one, maybe two fail, you're done. Like people don't want to work with you anymore. Whereas, yeah, I mean, it's true. It's true for directors or actors or whatever. People are pains in the asses, yeah. like, and they don't make any money. Then it's kind of like, okay, it's not worth it. Right. Life's too short, you know. Yeah, but if you're a great person, people are more willing to give you that opportunity. Oh, we'll give him another shot. We'll give him another shot. But yeah, yeah. that's. There's uh, a friend of mine who actually made over Twitter. Um, yeah. Sean Colin Smith. Um, I got to know over Twitter. We've mm-hmm. since become, you know, met up in real life and 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 had lots and you know hung out a lot and he's a good friend and he just announced today that he just got staffed on his first show which is awesome cool and he's not a client i should mention he's just a friend um and you know scott's an amazingly talented writer and then when i started getting to know him in person you know obviously even before this on twitter he's just a super awesome friendly mm-hmm. smart or you know uh, passionate dude you're just great when you're around him you're hanging out like it's just mm-hmm. the most you're having a really good time and i was like man this guy is incredibly talented and he's incredibly He's just a good person and any room he walks into is better for having him in it. And I was like, okay, it's a matter of, you know, when, not if that Sean's going to become successful, especially in the TV world, you know? Right. Um, But you know, that's, that's the kind of person where that's the kind of person where that's the ideal client is someone who's a phenomenal writer, but also, you know, the kind of person you want to be friends with, like independent Mm -hmm. of work, just be like, this is a, you know, because a lot of times, you know, if you're an executive, you're going, you're like, okay, do I want to work with this person? Um, and if that, you know, you're going through your list, you're like, okay, well, these people are, you know, you go through your whole list. And you're like, well, I really like, you know, this person, uh, they're really cool and they fit it. So like, I should go to them. You know, you, you find ways to work with them. Right. Like, you know, a lot of directors or producers work with the same writers over and over because there's a shorthand and they, they trust the person and they know that, you know, that, that it'll, it'll be a good working experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so be that person. Sean, I don't know his full name, but yeah, be that, be Sean. <laughs> yeah, be Sean. Um, uh, we've got, we're starting to pile up some questions here, so let me start running a, a few of them by you here. Sure. Um, Marcus Aurelius, hi, John, big fan of your Twitter threads. Yeah, everyone's I mean, a fan Marcus of Marcus Aurelius is coming risen from the grave. Yeah, because, and he, like because he's such a big fan of your Twitter threads. Um, thanks for all your advice. When seeking an agent or representation, do you think it's better to have three to five scripts of the same genre or a mix? Um, well, honestly, uh, I would, I always always go with one. I mean, I've signed people off of one script all the time. That's so I'll answer two questions. First off, how many scripts do you need? Secondly, should they be the same genre? Yeah. Um, first off, I personally have signed people off one screenplay all the time. I often don't even need to read a second one, although they often offer it up. Um, but there are a lot of reps out there that sometimes will want to read a second script. Um, but honestly, people are lazy and they like one script. They tend to go with it, especially if the script is so overwhelmingly good mm-hmm. that they'll, they'll just kind of go with that. Although often what you will see is that they like one script or if they're on the fence, what they'll say is they might ask for another one, but really what they want to do is they want to meet with you and they want to hear what you're working on next because mm-hmm. they want to assess those ideas and be like, okay, was this one, was this one great good script a fluke? And do you want to write 
things in the same similar kind of genre and style going forward, which leads us to the second question. Um, you know, personally, I think things should be either in the same genre or complementary genres. Mm -hmm. So what do I mean by that? If there's a kind of like spectrum of genre and at one end is comedy and the other end is kind of like dark horror, although I guess they could like circle back to horror comedy, <laughs> right? but really it's like, okay, there's dark, dark horror and, and, and comedy kind of, for me, it would go comedy, comedy action, which is what I define something like ride along mm -hmm. and then action comedy, which is something more like lethal weapon or whatever, mm -hmm. then pure action, then thriller kind of, and then, you know, horror thriller, supernatural thriller, and then horror and then, you know, dark horror or whatever that's kind of the spectrum. So if you wrote like a horror script, I think if your other script was a thriller, that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Those two things feel like if you're Andrew Kevin Walker and you wrote seven and you also wrote Sleepy Hollow, okay, those two things play off of each other. Sure. But if you're Andrew Kevin Walker, and to be fair, I know Andrew Kevin Walker actually wrote uh, seven, obviously, and he also wrote like a, a kind of a late comedy. And I think that was like really through people um, when he took it out, you know? And so generally what we're trying to do when we take it as a rep is we're trying to build a brand. We're trying to say like, like if Aaron Sorkin had come out with, I mean, he came its own path, but like a few good men, but then he also like, like a really wacky broad comedy, like a three stooges thing. People would be like, okay, well, what does an Aaron Sorkin script mean? Mm -hmm. And generally when we're trying to establish you, we're trying to say, okay, this is what, a, you know, Andrew Kevin Walker script means. You know, if you're getting this, you kind of know what it means, you know? Now look, once you have some success, you can branch beyond that. Someone like Scott Frank or John August they can write all kinds of different genres, but they kind of earned like John August broke in with writing how to uh, how to eat fried worms. I think was mm -hmm. his, the first thing that really broke through for him. And then eventually he wanted to pivot and kind of go into more adult stuff. And he wrote Go on Spec that pivoted him during like Charlie's Angels and lots of other stuff. Um, you know, the same thing for all these other writers. But I think you want to start off in one place and then expand into the other things. So I would stick to. Uh, a single genre complementary genres. I, I will say I found it really hard when people write a really dark horror script and then the next one is like a wacky rom-com or mm -hmm. something. And that's hard for people to process because those are two very different lists to be on. And our goal is to essentially get you onto one or two lists, but get you near the top of it, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that down the road you can't expand that, but starting off with, I think you want to work in, in genres or complementary genres. Mm -hmm. Uh, let's see here. Um, our good friend Ash Laser. To you both, as always, I am so grateful for these sessions, for your hard work, transparency, and willingness to share. It truly, truly means a lot. So thank you, thank you, Ash. Thank um, you, Ash. Uh, what's your ideal script uh, from a potential new client you're interested in signing? Feature or TV limited series, original or IP based, and uh, genre specific genre? Um, I would say you know I'm like. It's really about uh, the concept. I would say IP based. I mean, that's it's hard for me to under, believe someone finding IP that means anything mm -hmm. um, on their first script. Like you're like, I've got Lord of the Rings, you know. <laughs> so the IP based thing, I, I don't really see that as being like you take something like Infinite that was based on a self published novel, which it was great and had a really fascinating concept and a lot was there. But the fact that it was based on IP, like I don't think it, Infinite could have been completely original, and I don't think that would have made it sell more or less. And that's no disrespect to the original book. It's just the original book didn't sell like hundreds of thousands of copies or anything, you know? Um, so the IP aspect, um, you know, it didn't help with awareness in terms of the market or anything. Um, so, you know, the IP thing, it doesn't matter if it's original or it's based on a 
random self-published or old book or something like that, you know, I, I, you know, if you have a really cool spin, the great Gatsby, that's interesting, but like, you know, so does everybody in town, I guess, at this point, um, thriller feature, just, you know, sorry, a uh, feature or TV. That's just more what, what I would say, if you written a TV show, that means we're going to try and push you as a TV writer. If you've written a feature, we're going to try and push you as a feature writer. Um, I would say mini series, limited series are very, very hard to sell for mm-hmm. up and coming writers. Doesn't mean it can't happen, but it's re it's really, that's really hard to sell for established writers, let alone for up and coming writers. Although I will say for your first script, the chances of us selling it into development are relatively low because they tend to want to buy from established writers. So I'm really just focused on is your TV sample something amazing that I think people will want to read and then will want to meet with you. Mm -hmm. Um, The job of the script is to get you in the room for features you know, we have a good chance of selling that. We have a better chance of selling that than we have of selling a TV pile is what I mean to say. Um, so that I do assess that, but like if it's something that's, you know, I've certainly taken a lot of scripts that were kind of blacklist bait, you know, like rumors or something like the Fleet of Mac biopic, where mm-hmm. I, I think the chances of selling it were slim given the rights issues. Um, but that was something or something, you know, like a headhunter, which was really dark and noisy, but I knew people were going to want to read it because um, it was just a really fun read. So that would be something, um, you know, that would be something that, uh, that, you know, I'd be like, okay, this is interesting. I may not sell it, but I know it's the kind of thing people are going to want to read. So really, I'm just looking for something that really grabs the attention. I'm less driven by like what has to fit into these parameters, Mm -hmm. um, although I'm mindful of them. And I'm more about, um, does it reflect the career that you want to have going forward? Right. People are like, I wrote a TV pilot, but I never want to work in TV. Then like, what's the point? (laughs) Right. Um, and he had mentioned genre. Does genre matter? Not really. I would say, like personally, I don't do a ton of kind of broad comedy. I would say I've done. I have dark, darkly comedic writers and things like that. Um, you know, I now, find comedy is that, generally. Is that very, a personal preference, or is that like the marketplace? It's a personal. Well, it's it's kind of both, really. Mm-hmm. It's a personal preference where I just don't. I find also comedy very hard to give notes on because. Um, it's very relative. Hmm. Like if I say this thriller beat isn't working, like it's not scary, then generally people agree on that. One, right. right. But comedy, I'm like, this joke isn't funny. You're like, Oh, my five friends thought it was hilarious, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like hard to disagree with that. Um, you know, something that's more like a, like a dramedy, you know, I would say that, you know, that's a little easier to parse, you know, um, uh, that makes sense. I also think the comedy market right now is, is difficult. It's really hard. They don't make a lot of comedies anymore. Right. Um, honestly, um so that's really hard that's kind of based around um well-known you know pieces of talent you know right um so you know we do that said at Bellevue we do comedy writers you know and it has been quite successful well I wouldn't call them like broad comedy writers I would call them like you know more darkly comedic or dramedy writers you know now do you see the market changing because obviously theatrical mid-budget comedies are not really a thing anymore mm. uh, and they're shifting to the streamers right. do you see that opening up the market more for broad comedies and things like that or is that something that's people not- i think your concept has to be really big it has to be the kind of like like i think 
you look at something, um, I'm going to screw it up, but there's, a, I think, a George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez, sorry, not Jennifer Lopez, Julia Roberts movie getting me, I think called Tickets to, Ticket to Paradise mm-hmm. that Old Parker is directing. And that had a really big kind of concept and that attracted two movie stars, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, the, I, I think I would say, look, comedy still get made. The concept and the execution of that concept just has to be super high level. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, let's see here. Um... I would say any genres like Westerns or whatever, Uh they always get made, but it's almost like if you write like a B plus or an A minus horror script, that's great. That could get made. But I think if you're going to write a Western, it's got to be A plus. It's got to be so good that it gets over the issues with the genre in the marketplace. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, Anthony Lewandowski says, hi, John, if I had an impressive, if I had impressive coverage scores on a few of my scripts from we screenplay would that interest managers agents and producers no it's looking i don't care about the coverage scores from people that i don't personally know mm-hmm. all i care about are is your log line now look i will say if someone's like i scored like a nine on the blacklist well to be fair if you did then i probably would have gotten it in my weekly like mm. email or something people right. have told me like i got a 10 someone got a 10 out of 10 once and i read the script and i was like this doesn't feel like a 10 out of 10 <laughs> Um, but, um, so, you know, sometimes people are like, I got an eight or a nine on the blacklist. I actually, I guess I rescind my comments on that one. Cause I guess the blacklist I have cared about that one, but generally I would put like this. Someone's like, I got an eight, uh, on the blacklist and I read the log line. It doesn't seem interesting to me. Then I probably don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but generally it's, it's, it's almost always going to come to someone to be like, I got a five on the blacklist, but here's my log line. I love the log line. I'm going to read it. Mm-hmm. You know, right. it doesn't, it's all about the, the kind of scores and stuff like that not super interesting really what it really boils down to is that log line for me personally right no we hear that i hear that a lot from you know pretty much every manager it's, it's about the log line the concept um but then at, at when it's all said and done it's about the execution right but <laughs> you gotta have both Once it gets you in the door the execution yeah. keeps you there um Let's see here. Uh, Nathan Lathroom says, as someone who has had some success in being hired to rewrite scripts, but has had little success with selling specs, what might the path to literary representation look like? I mean, a lot of people having problems selling specs. (laughs) Right. I mean, the whole kind of like I've gotten paid to rewrite people's scripts. I don't really know what that means per se. I'm assuming if you don't have representation that you've been doing it kind of on the lower end of things it hasn't been done on like studio movies or mm-hmm. big production company movies or things like that because it would be surprising to me if that was to happen and you either a didn't already have representation or b could get representation mm-hmm. um you know i mean it's all going to be about a screenplay that we either feel we can sell or we can get everyone in town to read mm-hmm. or ideally both you know right. like if it's like a straight ahead kind of somewhat you know straightforward genre movie but i'm like oh the concept's really cool here but it's a little familiar but i feel like it's makeable and that's the kind of thing we could probably sell to a financier maybe get made for like one to three million dollars but that's not really going to get anyone in the studio space super interested in it because it feels a little generic you know right um you know but if you wrote an amazing script that didn't feel it wasn't necessarily super duper commercial um, you know, like uh, a client of, of Bellevue's wrote a script called Baron, which is all about Baron Trump and his mm. attempts to kind of stop his father from winning the election that would end up in the blacklist. And that, like, you're never going to get that made, but it was such an amazing script and so well done that everybody ended up reading it and loving it and wanting to work with Nick. 
um, you know, that's the kind of thing where that's going to get some attention. The ideal thing is you have an amazingly commercial concept, something like Safe House, and it's amazing, and then it's incredibly well executed, and then everybody wants it, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, that's the sweet spot. But that's, I mean, I know that's like, you're like, what's the path of representation? The other thing I guess I would mention is if you're getting people hiring you to, to rewrite scripts and they are, I guess, known quantities, which I don't know if they are or they aren't, then in that case, maybe ask them for a reference or something, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But again, it's really hard to judge from a rewrite, I would say. Um, like, it's really hard. I, I've never taken an example that was like a rewrite because it's kind of like, well, where the, I did, I need to read the original draft and then I need to read your rewrite to be able to judge your writing ability, right. you know? Um, so that's always really hard. I, you, it's still going to come down to your original script. Right. Yeah. No, and, and he, they mentioned that, or Nathan mentioned he has specs, like he has had little success right. selling specs, but yeah. But I mean, in the, in the marketplace, it's not the salad days of, we like the concept, let's just buy the spec, uh, you know, in the 90s. Right. Um, no. Let's see here. Uh, Ash asks, are most of your clients feature or TV writers? Is that, uh, and is that ratio changing now with the rise of streamers versus theatrical fare? I mean, even the, the streamers rose out with the, I, if, if someone writes a feature for a streamer, they're still a, a feature writer, sure, yeah. you know? Um, I would say it's more that there's so many TV shows getting made, you know, nowadays. Um, I would say, I don't know. I think it still might, I think it still might be 55, 45, but also might be 50, 50 at this point um, in terms of clients, TV versus feature. It started off a lot more features Mm -hmm. because it's easier to launch people in features than it is to launch them in TV. Um, But, um, you know, just for the sake of like, because in TV, it's really hard to get that first staffing job and you kind of start at the bottom because if you have a TV show staff, let's say there's like 10 spots, then like the top, I don't know, seven are for people who've already staffed, right? Like your executive producer, co-executive producer, producer, supervising producer, executive story editor, story editor, all those people have staffed on a one, at least one show previously. So the staff writer, which is the position open to people who've never staffed before, there aren't a lot of those positions. There's maybe one, there's, there's, there's maybe three, two, maybe even only one spot. And you're competing against everybody else to get that first spot. Then once you've staffed on a show, and sometimes they try to make you a repeat staff writer level, like, oh, it hasn't gotten made yet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then you move on to like story editor. Then you move on to executive story editor. Just you, you move up, bump up from show to show. Um, and so it can take a long time to kind of grow a TV writing career. Um, and so, you know, I have clients now who have finally kind of moved up to like the upper level, you know, producer, co-executive mm-hmm. producer level writers, but it took a while for them to get there starting off at staff writer. It took a number of years for them to get there. So with TV, it can take a lot longer and, you know, you can only have so many people who are kind of at staff writer level because, you know, you're trying to get them going and it takes a while to kind of get them going. And then as people kind of move up, well, then you can bring in another person because then you're focusing on different levels, you mm-hmm. know? So like, Oh, we're only looking at lower levels, right? We're not only looking at upper levels right now. We're only looking at mid-level right now. You know, so you kind of want an assortment of clients at different levels, ideally. Um, and so with features, it's easier to break people in because um, people read a featured script. They like you and they're like, they're not like, OK, we're only looking for I mean, well, this does happen. We're only looking for A-list people right now. But more often than not, people are open to reading a brand new writer and an established writer, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that the established writer is going to probably cost three, four times as much as the as the, as the newbie writer you know right um and so sometimes that's the reason they chose the kind of newer writers because they know 
they're only going to have to pay that person eighty thousand dollars or something. That's kind of like, you know, um, guild minimum or something. Or I actually that's guild minimum for purchasing a script. So I forget exactly what it is, but it's cheaper than like paying someone hundreds of thousands of dollars who's a more established writer. That mm-hmm. might be the choice they decide to make. Right. Um, so you know, it's it's kind of so we start off kind of more features than TV. Also, my background is more in features. Um, but now I think it's getting to a 50-50 situation. Yeah, and another thing with breaking staff writers is even if there's one or two slots, oftentimes one of the two, if not both, go to uh, support staffers, right? The showrunner's well, assistant, the, the writer's assistant. That would only be in the second season. Oh, I mean a new pilot, you mean? Yeah, like a, a new show. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean just uh, like available staff jobs on any TV show that's out there. Yeah, established exactly. shows. Like yeah, exactly. There's a second or third season, you know, having been a writer's assistant, you're hoping that they're promoting at least they're promoting, you know, someone internally. Right. You know? Which and that does happen. Yeah, absolutely. Which makes a writer, a staff writer starting off from scratch coming in even harder because, you know, there's yeah. even fewer. I mean, I was, we were lucky. My client, Johnny Gomez, um, was the writer's assistant on This Is Us and they promoted him to staff writer. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, and that final season, which is super duper exciting. So, and you love, you love when that happens because those people put their time in, they put the work in and, Nobody knows and loves the show as much as as, as those people, as right. you know, the kind of support staff people do. Yeah. And certain networks, it also, uh, you're competing with fellowship writers. And a lot of the fellowship writers, they their salaries paid by, you know, like CBS. Although the fellowship writers technically should come in as story editors in the next season. But oh, yeah. really? I didn't know. Is that the. Well, because they've already staffed on one season, right? Mm. But sometimes it can be very weird about that. It's up to like the showrunner and like the whole, because theoretically the fellowship people came in and they came in, you know, they're in addition. Anyways, it's a whole politics budget thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just mean like getting hired off the, out of the fellowship, you know, right. usually they're starting off as a, as a staff writer. Oftentimes they're asked to do repeat. I mean, I've heard many, many right. stories no, of them being asked to repeat as that a staff. That definitely does happen. You know, but again, you're a, a client and brand new client going in never having staff don't you never been a showrunner's assistant don't have those networks and you're competing against again the showrunner's assistant the writer's assistant from that show you're competing against the you know two got two people from the fellowships whose salaries being paid by you know cbs or whatever so it's it's tough it's tough to break tv writers um i say is that if i know from a management perspective but uh Let's see here. Uh, Michael Smith says, other than the names of characters, when you're first introduced to them, what things do you believe should be capitalized in the action lines of a screenplay? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't really have a rule. Just the things that, you know, make sense, you know? Right. I mean, often, like, it's it's all a stylistic thing. My advice to you is to read a ton of screenplays, mm-hmm. particularly screenplays from the last 10 years, as opposed to going back and reading, like, one from the 70s or something. Right. And be like, okay, like, like, you know, I'll, my wife, Elise, will often like, or Ian Shore will obviously, you know, write a blind description. They'll end it with cut two. Right. So they don't paginate and do another cut two, but they don't always use cut two. And then the cut two will be italicized. But I don't know. It, it depends what, there's no rule. It's just what looks good on the page and what makes sense for the read. You mm-hmm. know, I don't have rules. Like every time a prop is introduced, it must be like, you know, if something's important, yeah, then you might want to like, highlight it you know right it just depends it, there's no hard and fast the reality is there is there are no hard and fast rules about these things it's just what what makes sense when you read it and what doesn't what feels natural and not distracting right absolutely readability is your most important the the screenplay format is by its very nature 
an awkward format. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you read screenplays, you know, hundred years ago, well, I guess it wouldn't be a hundred years ago, but like from like the forties or the fifties, they look very different. They look more like stage plays, you know? Um, and the, I think really, you know, especially Bill Goldman really changed that format and making it ready a lot more novelistically. Um, and he was an amazing writer, but I also think the fact that his screenplays were so readable, mm-hmm. it's not a surprise that people enjoyed reading them more and thus bought them more, you know? Absolutely. Um, and I think your goal as a writer is to take, uh, you know, I think unfortunately coming out of film school, a lot of people are taught like the screenplay is a blueprint for a movie, but it's not, not in, in the sense that they like, not early in your screenplay, unless until it gets made, mm-hmm. and that can be a long way. It's not. Early on, it's just a blueprint. What it is, is a reading experience. Right. You know, like, I think I've talked about this before, but Tony Gilroy, when he came into my NYU class, one of the things he said was, my job is to get people to keep turning the page. Yeah. And that's yeah. the job. You know, it's not to be like, oh, well, this thing is like, people have been like, you can't use sc- songs and scripts because then that'll really upset the line producer because uh, they won't be able to like get mm-hmm. the licensing for that. I'm like, you so fucking far away from getting to the line producer and <laughs> a budget. What are you talking about? Who gives a shit? Right. You know? Right. I don't, you know, I get to a line producer. It's one of those good problems to have, you know? Right. Right. That being said, I mean, trying to keep to the basic conventions of where the dialogue goes and, and, you know, oh, that's pretty, that, yeah. that's I mean, pretty, like, you, you don't want to go. It is, but then I've like my client, Chris, uh, Chris Thomas Devlin, his script Cobweb, mm-hmm. he fucked with all that stuff. Really? You know? That's and cool. so I, here's what I would say. If you're going to, if you're going to really mess with something, mm-hmm. you better have a reason for it other than it looks cool. Right. It better like, like Chris's script for cobweb. It's all about creating a certain mood and a certain tone and a certain feeling evoking a feeling, you right. know, again, the readability experience. Yeah, no, absolutely. And keep the, the reader turning pages, you know, as a former reader, obviously if, if the script is freaking genius, you don't care about margins. You don't care about, you know, format. That being said, like you said, if, if no matter how fancy you make it, if the script is subpar, you know, that's it. I'd be careful. Fuck with margins. <laughs> <laughs> what you don't want it to look like is amateur hour. There's sure. a fine line between elegant, elegant experimentation mm-hmm. and amateur hour. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, in terms of like, just going back to the question, like, uh, things that are capitalized. The things that are capitalized are, again, like John was saying, for production scripts. Like s- sounds are capitalized, you know, big sounds, because the sound department needs to know what to put in and they need to be able to see it properly. But for if you're just submitting it to get it read, it's obviously more important as the readability than, you know, getting exact formatting of that kind of stuff. Um, let's see here. Eileen, Eileen Montague says, Do you or any managers or agents look at option contracts or is that strictly for an entertainment attorney i mean i can look at them and give my opinions on them Mm -hmm. but i'm not a lawyer sure um so you know if if it was for very little money and it was a pretty straightforward thing that i might look on it and i would give my advice but i would also tell the client i'm not a lawyer Mm -hmm. if it's for a certain amount of money then you bring a lawyer right yeah no i think my guess is uh eileen may be asking like if they had an option contract and so if someone approached you with an option contract said hey i've got an option contract would you represent me in this deal you would say get an entertainment attorney. i don't do that yeah people do that all and they're like i have a deal that's on the table will you come rep me for this one deal and like i just don't do it because like 
it misrepresents what I'm about. I'm not like a freelance manager for hire. Mm -hmm. For me, it's about um, being invested in someone's career going forward, not about one submission or one deal or something like that. Right. Um, and, and honestly, what you need is a lawyer and you can go find a lawyer, a good entertainment lawyer. That's, that's going to be worth your weight more than like giving me 10% mm-hmm. for not much, you know, and not for an ongoing relationship, but also be misrepresenting myself to the other people involved as being your ongoing representation. So right. it's just not something I personally do. Uh, let's see here. David Wales. Hey, David. David is uh, one of our mods on our discord david whale says uh uh, will representation look at a writer who only produces a new feature every two years as a hobbyist and as a hobbyist and unserious uh asking for a friend so is it basically is it unattractive it's going to be forever then yes but if they have a full-time job currently and they're only able to churn out something every two years until is that something? It'd be hard. Yeah. I think it'd be really hard. You know, I mean like put yourself in my shoes. Would you do that? Cause like what I'm doing, let's say like, I like your script. I take it out to like 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 executives. Mm -hmm. Maybe get some the blacklist, maybe get some attention. Then you're like, okay, cool, man. Well, I'll see you in two years. (laughs) Right. What was the point? Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I know that's hard to say. And like, I got to tell you, when I was a writer, I was very slow about writing and doing things like that. Um, I mean, look, you can be like, it took me two hours, two years to write this script, but like the next one, I'm going to write a lot faster. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that, you know, mm-hmm. but I mean, I'm not going to ask you how long it took you to write the screenplay when I read it, sure. but I will be like, so let's get working on the next one. Right. You know, and if that takes two years or something, then you know, in the meantime, you know, I might get busier with other stuff, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, and because I don't make money until you make money. You know, if I have a client who's writing one script every two years, it's just there's other things going on. Right. You know? How much time are you going to be able to invest helping develop that script for two years for no money? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of productivity, what would you say would be sort of on the average that you would expect from a feature writer, like one every six months, something like that. And what about for television? For a new, I'd a say new... one a year for a one feature a writer. Okay. One a year for a feature writer. Uh, and for TV, if you're not employed doing something, if you're not already staffed on a TV show, mm-hmm. I'd want at least two pilots a year. Okay. I think that's perfectly fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Michael Smith, how do residual payments work for feature writers and how are they calculated do reps take a cut of these ongoing residuals or do they only take a cut of the initial sale price of the screenplay? Reps do not commission residuals in terms of how they're calculated. I would refer to the WGA because I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but what we do, we will take the, we would commission the sale price. We'd also commission um, uh, any, any writing steps. So like, let's say we sell a screenplay for a hundred thousand dollars and then they hire you to rewrite for fifty thousand dollars. Well, we're commissioning that. And then if there's a credit bonus built in of like two hundred thousand dollars, if and when the movie gets made and you get sole credit, we also commission that. Mm-hmm. But we do not commission residuals. Gotcha. Uh, do you know if agents do? Or is that they do not. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ash asks, could you discuss a situation in which you would hip pocket a writer? Is it more based on gauging writer potential over a short period of time or uh, shopping the single script? You know, generally, I don't hip pocket people. That said, there is like one situation right now that I'm doing a little bit of that. 
the fact that I can speak to it only having done it once in like six, almost seven years of mm -hmm. work and speak to the fact that I don't, but I did read this one screenplay and I was like, I like it. I like the writer. You know, I, what I would say is right now I'm taking his script. I found an agent who liked, it. I think we're going to take it out and see if we can do something with it. Um, and then, you know, I think he's talented. So we're, we're in talks about what his next script might be. And I want to read that. And if I really read that and loved it, then I think that would be an ongoing relationship. Mm -hmm. but that's the only time I've ever done that really, I guess there's another person I'm talking to. I guess the, I guess, you know, the funny thing is up until this year, I'd never done it before. Um, and maybe to some degree it's because now I have so many clients and I'm quite busy. And so, you know, for me, it would be about reading something that I felt I could potentially sell, but I was hundred percent sure. And I was also not hundred percent sure about, you know, the client as an ongoing um, client per se, mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, this person's talented. Are they talented enough? I don't know. Can I sell this screenplay? I might be able to, you know, and I would, but I would, what I would also say is I would be a hundred percent open mm -hmm. with uh, the potential client and be like, look, here's the thing. I really like you. I don't know. I'm all the way in though. So I'd like to take the script out, see what kind of response we get to it. If people, I can do something with it. Great. If I can't, then, you know, go with God. You know, if, if you don't want that, like if you want someone who's a hundred percent in on it, you should, talk to other people because this is where I'm personally at. Mm -hmm. But again, I've only done that like really twice in the entire seven years. So it's just not something I'm kind of generally, I'm most of the time I'm either hundred percent in or hundred percent out. You right. know? Uh, let's see here. Uh, David, uh, how stupid is it for an unrepped writer to write a script that would most likely be NC 17 for sexual content? Asking for a friend. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I don't read scripts and I'm like, oh my God, this is NC-17. Mm. I mean, like, I would simply say if there's a lot of sex in it, then like, it's more like, is it germane to the concept and to mm. the script? There's a bunch, people are like doing like Titan or something or whatever, or basic instinct. And I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But like, what are you going to like writing like super graphic? Like, you're like, she takes off her shirt and then this and then that, like, would you just write like, they make, I don't know, like, how do I know that it's NC-17? Yeah. I don't quite no it's really more about like is the screen does it feel germane to the concept in the script right. or you know is it gratuitous saying? yeah but I, what i would say like if there's a lot of sex in the script and it's very necessary for the plot mm -hmm. um then i'd be like okay well does this feel like it's necessary and does it also feel like i can we can do something with this and that this might get attention like if you did secretary or you did like sausage party sure. right like mm -hmm. both scripts in which you know sex and and you know kind of really you know over the top content are like necessary right then that makes sense yeah, you know so if it's just a regular script that you put a lot of sex scenes into it then it feels it feels kind of amateurish right you know? yeah uh let's see here there's a lot of talk about high concept and execution dependent as if there are as if there are two things but i'm pretty sure it's a spectrum and wonder if you could talk speak to that middle 50 percent I don't know what this middle 50% is, but they're actually are separate. The first I would say high concept is something that is such a good idea mm -hmm. that even if it was executed in a mediocre way, people would buy it. So like liar, liar. Mm. I just, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like a lawyer cannot tell a lie for a single day. Right. Okay, man, you could write a bad version of that and people would buy it. Right. You know, um, I'm trying to think of something else off the top of my head. You're like, like that is like Groundhog Day or something. You're like, mm -hmm. yeah, that is such a bad you know, such a, such a, a great idea that immediately you're like, wow, you know? And then I would say execution dependent is generally something smaller, something weirder, 
Like I would see something like Nightcrawler is an example of execution dependent, right? right? It's such a weird, fucked up, dark story that unless you did it exactly right, then people might be like, why am I following this sociopath jerk who like, you know, videotapes people in car accidents? I don't want it. This doesn't, this feels like a hard movie to get made. Mm -hmm. So they're actually not like, I know what you're trying to say, which is all scripts are execution dependent, but if the concept is so sticky and so like, oh my God, you know, then, then, you know, honestly, we'll, they'll read and be like, we can hire someone to make this better. Right. Where something like Nightcrawler, they're not gonna be like, oh, we'll just hire someone to make this better. Cause like the movie is so small and so fucked up that like they might as well just not make the movie. Right. You know? Yeah. The only way so, it's going to grab you is if it's good, you know, if it's really well written in and of itself. Otherwise, yeah, you're like, really, you're like, like what is this mess? Like, like something like Lady Bird, it's mm. 100% execution dependent, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you're like, it's about a girl and, you know, senior year of high school and she's trying to decide whether to move away from her, her family and all that kind of stuff. Like, okay, that's really going to be, can you nail this or not? You know, whereas, you know, a big studio movie, um, that's going to be, I'm trying to think of like another big dumb concept kind of like something like free guy and again by the way i'm not saying any of those scripts were poorly written they're not they mm-hmm. have you know but free guy is like an npc you know you're like oh okay i know what this movie looks like right you know um and you know but those were executed really well something like infinite like that felt like a concept honestly that was kind of a, a no-brainer which mm-hmm. was like what if you could inherit you know lo- you know abilities from your past lives you know um and obviously ian did an amazing job at it and you know if you look at that <laughs> It was sold in 2017. It went to production in 2019. So that speaks, I think, to the fact of how how good is script Ian delivered. Mm-hmm. But I think even if we'd had a mediocre writer on that who delivered like a B plus version of it or something, or a B even a B, I think they would have read and be like, okay, we'll get this for cheap, but let's see if we can hire someone to make it make it better, you right. know? Because there's right. something here, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, have your company's sources for looking at new talent changed recently with some sources becoming more prominent and others falling away. What's bizarre is that up until last year, I'd never signed anyone off of a query letter. Never. Really? Never. Actually, I signed a comic book writer that I worked with, but he wasn't a screenplay writer. Right. Never. And then the last two years I've signed probably like 10 writers off of uh, query letters. Really? Crazy. That's really been impressive. Um, was it just since the pandemic or was it even prior to that? I don't know. It's weird. Maybe I have more time to read my emails. Maybe they're just yeah. better. Also, it's it's hard. It's like, it's it's interesting. I think, I personally think more screenplays are getting written nowadays mm-hmm. than, or maybe I'm just getting more. I don't, I, I do think people are writing more scripts. I think you are I mean, getting secondly, more too because you're so active and you've become a Twitter yeah, celebrity. Yeah, I think I've become a lot better known and so mm-hmm. people send me more mm-hmm. and also like i'm one of the only people who like reads query letters you know and so therefore it's like this weird you know captured audience essentially um and so yeah i found a lot of clients through query letters recently probably more than almost any other wow this year more than any other source um i would say the blacklist used to be the number one place i found people and i still find people through there and it's still a really great resource and I literally got, you know, the TV, our TV scripts, our, our readers have liked and the future scripts. I got that this week or today, rather, a couple of hours ago, and I read through it thoroughly and deeply like I always do. Um, but nothing jumped out at me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't think I signed any. I didn't sign anyone out of Austin this year, um, although I did have a client win Austin, who oh. I already signed. 
um, or win the horror category, mm-hmm. I should say. Sure. Um, script pipeline. I've signed two clients this year through it. Um, and then my colleagues signed another client through it. So that's been really amazing. And I think, you know, I'm, I think I'm open that I'm really good friends with Matt over at script pipeline. And I think the world of, of them, and I found a lot of really great talented people through them. Um, Screencraft, I found a client through this year. Um, yeah, that's been kind of the interesting ones. Um, but you know, I would say like Austin, Screencraft, Script Pipeline, those are pretty standard places to me. The Blacklist, this has been slightly less this year, but to me that doesn't diminish my focus on it. Right. And query letters have really been the, the thing that's kind of like mm-hmm. risen through the roof in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, finding people. Um, you know, I would probably say though, weirdly my percent, no, I still, I probably get so many more query letters now that the percentage that I respond to, it's like, let's, I probably get like 50 a day. So wow. that people have to like 500 or not 500. I don't know what that equals so out to like. 350, 350 for a seven, 350 for a seven day a week. week. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's call it 300. Cause I don't know. Maybe on Saturday. That's a lot. It's down. And then I would say of those 300, I probably request four or five maybe and then of those maybe i like one maybe you know maybe right. i maybe i do zoom with that person and then maybe of those people i do zooms with maybe i sign half or less i don't know you know um so you know that's kind of the situation really um those numbers are probably not exact i probably would have sent a lot more people up queer letters if those numbers were exact i probably even worse than that honestly right yeah um but um yeah that's kind of the situation uh it's it's always been contests the blacklist um coverfly i've read people through i've never i've tried to sign people through them but i've never actually signed anyone through them although i believe my colleagues have signed people through coverfly mm-hmm. um yeah hmm. uh let's see here uh and by the way i don't think i've signed anyone in so funny because this is the number one i got into it not a debate, but not a disagreement even. Um, when I was at Austin Film Fest, uh, I was like, oh, we don't sign anyone through, we, you know, referrals are not the only way to, to sign clients. And the other manager on the panel with me was like, she's like, referrals is the only way I sign people. And I saw another manager on Twitter who's like, yeah, the only way I sign people is through referrals. Mm-hmm. I obviously will take referrals from my clients. But the reality is I don't think I've signed anyone through a referral in like a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not true. My client uh chris parisa um passed along someone that i, I quite liked although i haven't really tr- we're, we're that's someone i'm talking to is kind of more of a hip pocketing kind of situation mm-hmm. um but generally you know i would say that where that might be the number one way for other managers it hasn't been for me um for whatever reason i don't know i mean it seems like a lot of reps that don't spend the the, the effort to dig through the mountains of of crap so to speak meaning all the queries that just they just don't bother with them they only yeah. go through referrals because they don't want to go through them you know to find that diamond in the rough that needle in the haystack but then there are those like yourself that that for whatever reason that, that work i think you you just will sit there for hours sifting through to find it that doesn't potential. take hours i will i will tell you that the okay. god's honest truth is i read them probably within half an hour of when they come in because mm-hmm. it takes so it's so quick mm-hmm. number one at least a third, maybe even 50% have attachments oh, if they've attached their gotcha. screenplay. So that's an automatic delete. Mm-hmm. Auto delete, it's gone out of my inbox. 
And then it's like, do you only have one log line or did you put five log lines? Mm. Is it 20? Is it like a three pages long or something? Right. If it's three pages long, if they did more than one like log line, it's, by the way, when I say more than one, it's not like there's two, right? It's always either one or like 20, right. like a million, right? right. They're like, here's every screenplay I've ever written. And right. it's like, okay, no, I'm not going to, I'm not sorting through that. Right. You know? right. Um, so the ones that are kind of written like in a normal readable fashion you're already down to like probably like a third, <laughs> you know? Gotcha. And so the ones that are read, read kind of written kind of properly, I do read those, but often like, you know, some are like, oh, this is an interesting background. Oh, that log line's pretty generic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a detective tracking down a killer. I'm like, okay. Right. You know, <laughs> cool. Yeah. You know, um, I'm not trying to be a dick. It's just like, if I'm not interested to read it from that, how is anyone else going to be read it, interested mm-hmm. to read it from that? You know, the person might be like, well, actually, there's a lot more complexities to it. But like if you're doing, a, 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 you know, a cop detective movie, it better be really interesting because God knows we've seen a million of them at this mm-hmm. point. So, you know, that's why something, you know, that really pops out in a weird way. I'm like, oh, OK, this this is different. You right. Know? Well, and for writers, too, if the script is really good your logline should reflect that it's not an afterthought and you should write it like you're writing your script very with, you know, with great care and make it as enticing. As I possible, personally right? tell people to write their logline or just an iterate a bad version of it, like an iteration of it mm-hmm. before they write their screenplay or as they're writing their screenplay. Right. Because you should figure out like, does this feel like something that grabs someone? Yeah. You know? Yeah. What makes this detective movie different than other detective movies? Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Um, does it demonstrate a desirable skill for an unrepped writer to do an adaptation from the public domain? Yeah, if you can, like, I mean, I, if you can do a spin on something sure. that feels like it transcends the original material. So I, I, I'm i not like, it's just a straight sh- version of Great Gatsby. You're like, okay, no, this is like my version of it. And I put I did this spin on it that makes it really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. Right. I'm, 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 I'm semi-shocked by how rarely that happens. People almost very rarely, like the one of the first, actually the first thing I ever sold um, as a producer was a sci-fi adaptation of Count of Monte Cristo with Ian Shore. Um, oh. And that was, uh, you know, to be fair, a concept that we brought to him. Um, Cause I was, I loved, I was at the Count of Monte Cristo from when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, you know? And, uh, but yeah, I'm like, kind of shocked that people aren't like going and taking, you know, things and doing their own versions on them, you know? Yeah. Cause if someone's like, this doesn't mean someone's gonna, gonna please don't do this but there's someone's like oh i'm doing hamlet but it's you know like think about like there's this movie oh i'm blanking on it but that did Macbeth, and it was set in like a fast food restaurant hmm. like oh that's kind of fucking interesting right you know right um it's a familiar story but put into a different menu you know yeah yeah um and it feels like it's it's a very interesting idea easy a is um oh my god the scarlet letter but hmm. in high school you know right i mean obviously pretty loose but it's there you know right, right um and so i'm honestly surprised by how infrequently that happens uh let's see here michael smith when is a good time to query managers in the new year uh early to mid-january mid to late january february i would probably recommend late january because first week of january people are just getting back to their offices mm-hmm. First and second week of January, second and third week of January, I think is Sundance, mm. which to be fair, I don't think people are going to really be going this year. They're still going to be doing it virtually, mm. but even then they're going to be watching things, checking out reviews, right. being aware of things, streaming things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, that would be my recommendation. Uh -huh. Let's see here. What's your state of the industry outlook for the next two years? Zoom, streaming, theatrical, uh, mergers. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's a pretty broad topic. Um, I guess the first thing I'd answer is like, when are we going to start doing in-person meetings mm, Yeah. Um, as a regular thing? And I just don't know. I really don't know about that one. Um, I would think it would happen in the first quarter of next year, but it very well may not. Right. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I keep thinking it's going to be sooner rather than later. And it just, it hasn't happened. You know, I know a lot of companies are going back January 1st, but that really depends on where the COVID numbers are at. Right. Yeah. How absolutely. comfortable they feel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Where do I think the industry is going? Uh, I think sadly, there's going to be a lot more consolidation. Um, I think obviously MGM is being acquired by Amazon. So that's one less buyer right there. Mm -hmm. I personally suspect Paramount um, will not be around in the next five to 10 years. Mm. Um, uh, you know, personally, um, you know, Lionsgate has been talking about wanting to be, be acquired for a long, long time. Um, you know, so there's less buyers, uh, and they're, you know, just makes it harder, especially I think for theatrically released movies. Mm -hmm. I think unfortunately there's been less and less of those. Um, look, I think that there will always be content buyers because there's a voracious appetite out there for content. There's one thing we've learned is, you know, there are so many buyers for content, but I, it's kind of like this back in the eighties, there were like, think about like TV networks. There was like mm -hmm. basically four, right? right? ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox kind of at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So like four. And so I think the money you could make was like this. It was like huge. Right. But like the, the opportunities were like this. Mm -hmm. Like if you think how many TV shows were on the air, like scripted shows were on the air on, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox, probably like 32. I don't know what the numbers were. They weren't super high, right? right. Compared to now, oh my God, there's like a zillion freaking shows. Hundreds and hundreds. But yeah. while the opportunities are like this now, the money is now like this. Mm -hmm. It's still good money. Don't get me wrong. But... You know, and I think you're seeing this a lot with writers, you know, on streaming shows, you're on that for like 10 weeks, or you're on it for 13, right, weeks, and that's right. that, and then you wait for your next show, and then there's also weird window, exclusivity window, and things like that, and I think you can still make a good living, but it's a lot harder than it used to be. Bear in mind also the residuals, right? Residuals, you, you know, if you had a hit movie, a theatrically released movie, you could make millions in residuals. Mm -hmm. Now with streaming... Not so much. You make right. uh, make a few hundred thousand, you know, at best, you know. Um, and so it's really tough out there. It's really, really tough out there. I do still think you can make a living, obviously make a living doing it. But um, there's weirdly more opportunities and less money. Yeah. Which is strange. You yeah. Know? Uh, let's see here. Um, how soon after becoming established in a particular genre can a writer branch out into other genres? Also, what do you consider being established in a genre? I would say definitely having had a movie made hmm. or two, you know. Um, you know, I don't know. Like, my wife hasn't had a movie made yet, but she's written a lot of music-based movies. I can't list them all here because they're a lot of them are confidential. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Blonde Ambition she sold. She's writing a K-pop movie for 20th. 
She's running a dance movie for uh, Sony. Those are just the ones that have been announced. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more that have not been announced. Um, so even though she hasn't had a movie get made, I think if you're making a list of, um, you know, writers for a music oriented project, whether that's a musical or like, you know, a biopic or something in the music realm, she's going to be very much on that list, if not near the top of it. Mm -hmm. um, but she hasn't had a movie get made, you know? So I would probably say definitely haven't gotten like one or two movies get made or have worked on a regular basis in that area in the studio world. When can you switch it up? I guess a really question for when you feel financially viable enough to go and be like, okay, I'm going to take six months. I'm going to put it on something that's not what people want from me. Right. I, you know, because I have enough money in the bank that like I can do that. Mm -hmm. That's really the question. And it's also something to discuss with your reps. Mm -hmm. um, if you have reps about that, you know, so it's, it, it's a conversation to have. And, you know, the reality is, you know, it's about finding if you're a working screenwriter, um, sometimes taking time to like write that spec can be hard. Some writers find it pretty easy. Some writers find it hard to do that, especially when they've got ongoing kind of um, studio work, OWA work. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, Danielle Targon, uh, would management be the right course for two writers who co-wrote a script together but are not a writing team? If not, what would be the best course for a script in this situation? It's really hard. Um, it's just really hard. I mean, I think what you're going to have to do, I just, it's just hard. Cause like for me, I don't want to take a script by two people who don't write together on an mm -hmm. ongoing basis because I'm essentially a trying to sell it, but B what I'm really trying to do is get people to meet with you, but they're meeting with you and you don't write together going forward. What's the point of the meeting? Right. It's a pointless endeavor. Um, I mean, I would say your best thing is to try and get success as individual writers and then get one of your reps to take it out as kind of a flyer once they've already established you as a solo writer yeah. and be like, oh, here's one they just happened to write with somebody else. Right. You know, think about it like a band, right? You really get this great new album by a band and like they're together and then like, they're like, yeah, but we only want to do one album together. We don't want to tour together and we don't right. want to do any more albums together. Like the label's like, well, what, the, what was the point of this exactly? Right. You know? So huh. it's, it's really, people do that all the time and it's, it's hard. It's a really hard thing. Huh. Um, Alex Clark, John, in your opinion, what's the best movie with John in the title? Wow, that's a really good question. I don't even... Uh, the first one that comes to mind, I haven't even seen, is John Dies at the End. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, my God. I don't even know movies that have John in the title. Would any movie that with the title John Carpenter's whatever, would that qualify? The only one is John Carpenter's Ghost of Mars, right? Like, I don't is think it? there's anyone else that is John... I, I don't know. I don't think... It, I don't think I think you have to go like John Carter of Mars. That would be one. Okay. I have no clue. And I will have to think on that one. Yeah, you have to come back on next time. We'll have to ask you that again. You'll have to have a good answer. Yeah, I don't know. What other movies have John in the title? John Wick. Actually, there we go. There you go. That's, def that's definitely got to be the best one because it's the only one I can think of that I've actually seen. Yeah, there you go. Um, let's see here. East Coast Grinder. Um, are the day of six or seven figure original specs uh, effectively dead? No. They're not. Yeah. But they just don't happen as often. Right, right. Um, let's see. Well, especially six figure. That's not, you know. No. Yeah. Six figure, seven figure? Yeah. That doesn't happen very often. It right. used to happen really often. Doesn't happen that often anymore. But six figure? Oh, yeah. 
let's see here. Um, uh, Vincent Gumina says, "Do we most- sold one for six figures this year? Actually, we sold two, I think, for oh, six cool. figures." Uh, Vincent Gumina, do most of your clients follow similar processes and templates in regards to outlining, or does it vary largely by writer? It varies largely by writer. Yeah, that's one thing I learned early on in my writing career. <laughs> Um, cause I kept waiting for the secret when I was trying to be a writer. I was like, what's mm-hmm. the secret, what's the secret method? And what I realized is that everyone has their own method. Right. Um, look, I'll tell you what method I don't love is <laughs> I'll figure out the script. Um, <laughs> that method has historically not worked out super great. Right. Um, I'm sure I will eventually encounter a writer for whom it does. Um, but generally it doesn't work great. Um, I am... Ian Shore is the writer I've worked with probably the most, and he is a very rigorous outliner. Mm-hmm. Um, although he's more like, he isn't really like, we do this, then we do this. He's more like, he's more like hitting the beats, I would say, like the kind of general beats, you know? But, you know, that's kind of the, I would say that Ian and I kind of taught each other along the way, mm-hmm. um, kind of developing the methodology. And I don't hold that methodology as, um, a template that every single client should use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a methodology that's worked well for me and for Ian. Gotcha. Uh, let's see here. Um, what is the highest number of scripts that a client of yours has had bought or optioned within their first year of having you as their manager? I don't know. One. I don't know. Like people want these numbers and they, I, I feel like people, I don't know if this is what this person wants this for, but like they almost are trying to like calculate a formula of like success rate or something like that. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I'll put it like this. Here's an easy, I have a client and they, I signed them and they had some success, mm-hmm. um, but not a lot of success. And it took them three years. And now they are one of my most successful clients, but it took them three years to kind of find their groove. Mm-hmm. And then, and now they were the most in demand clients I have. Right. Go figure. Yeah. Everyone is a, if you're looking for an algorithm to explain success or to mar- or to um, measure yourself against, you're going to go wanting. There are people who have great success out of the date and then don't have any ever again. Yeah. There are people who have, it's a slow climb. There are people who peak and then they fall. Like, yeah, there is no um, algorithm for this, and that I think is terrifying for people. And they try to impose sometimes a um, you know a kind of a formula onto it where where none exists yeah yeah or at least they're trying to see well if i'm this point in my career i only have to go this much further or something yeah you can't really do that yeah. i wish man i wish i'd be like <laughs> well first year this happens and second right year, like i've had clients who i signed them and six months later they were staffed on a netflix show mm-hmm. i've had clients i've been working with for three or four years and we still haven't got them staffed unfortunately. Mm-hmm. yeah and you know but like we're still working together because i still super duper believe in them right right that's why you have to find somebody who believes in you Instead of just signing with someone, anyone, find someone who believes in you because if it doesn't happen, you still have someone like John championing you after three or four years, right? Um, let's see. Jonathan Stokes. Hey, it's Jonathan Stokes. Stokes. Yeah. Uh, hey, Stokes looking for advice from me. On I don't know. Let's see here. Hey, Kevin and John, does anyone go out with material between now and the end of the year? Or is, oh, Stokes. Is the buying season already done for 2021? Curious for your thoughts. Buying season's done, man. Come on, you know that. Buying season is definitely over. Buying season was probably done November. Look, here's the reality, though. I will say this. And John, so funny, Jonathan, who's a very incredibly successful screenwriter, mm-hmm. and I think has had more scripts in the blacklist than almost anybody, et cetera, et cetera, sold a spec last year, I want to say, right in the middle of a pandemic when people, when people said nothing could be done. Right. Um, so, you know, there are no rules. There's guidelines. 
I mean, look, I have a script that we're hoping to sell that the studio is saying like, hey, we're going to try and pick it up. And, you know, but we also took that out to them like six weeks ago or something, you know, so like it's a weird time. Would I take out any material right now? No, I wouldn't. Do I think there's going to be a flood of material January, the second or third week of January? I absolutely do. But there's been I was talking to an executive uh, at a wedding this weekend and I was like, when did you start getting specs again? He was like, September, first week of September. That's when the dam kind of broke and all the specs really started flooding out. And I was like, and I was like, and when is it kind of ending? He's like, it's kind of ending now, Mm -hmm. you know? But like, I really feel like now is not the great time to take something out. And I also feel like the market is so, like my buddy, uh, Andy, was telling me he got like 30 specs last week, you know? Wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. Madness. But I mean, look, you can wait till second or third week of January and it'll still be a flood. But like, the problem is, I personally wouldn't take anything out till second or third week of January at this point. Um, and all, but also the problem is, you know, you'd be like, well, then I'm just gonna wait till March, but then like someone might sell something with a similar concept. Right. So you're kind of damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the tricky thing uh, yeah. about it. But I personally would not, I think with Thanksgiving, like a week away, I just don't, cause the problem is, and you know, Jonathan likely already knows this, but maybe other people do not. Here's how the, look, here, I'll give you two things. Here's how the process used to happen. And then here's how the process happens nowadays. The process used to be, you take out a spec on a Tuesday, you, uh, to producers, maybe Monday, you take the producers, producers call territories, various studios they want to sell to on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday, it goes into the studios. Wednesday afternoon, it goes into the studios. The studios read it, the kind of junior executive reads it on Wednesday night. They come back and on Thursday, they either pass or they give it to their bosses. The bosses read on a Thursday and then you try to get an offer before the Friday because you don't want to go into the weekend because what happens over the weekend is people start to get new scripts. They start to get forget about the old script. They lose their focus. Oh my God. So you push as hard as you can to get an offer before the weekend. Mm -hmm. That's the old methodology. The current moment though is everything takes so long. Everything takes so, so long. And there's always a new script coming in people getting distracted and you want to make sure the executives are still excited about it. And these things just take weeks where they used to take a week, you know? Right. Um, right. But you, and you really can't pressure anyone until you get, look, if you've got a big attachment, like a big director, a big piece of talent, both, then like you can kind of shove it through, but it's really hard. You're just so you, it is a buyer's market at the moment. Um, so that is the hard thing. Hmm. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Monique Hall, given your examples of unprofessional interactions, what are some good tactics interactions that you'd recommend to new screenwriters? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I have a query letter kind of thread in my PDF, which is pretty straightforward <laughs> about how to really do it. Um, I would say, the first thing I would say is like research the people you're going to. And like for me, a, screen, a, a query letter that opens like Hi John or even Hi Bellevue Productions but honestly, hi, John, or hi, Zach, or hi, Kate, or hi, Jeff, the other people in my company, is better than that one says, hello, right? or like nothing, right? Mm-hmm. So that means that you kind of like you're targeting me or someone else in my company in particular for a particular reason, so which means you did your research, mm-hmm. which to me means that you're kind of, you're, you're potentially a kind of client that is thoughtful and serious about this being a profession, not just a lottery ticket mechanism. Right. Um, so first off, just even being like, hi, John, and then being like, you know, I noticed that you work with a screenwriter or I have written a thing or here's, I'm a nurse and I have written a screenplay about, you know, a personal thing that I witnessed or I've written something inspired by my work or I'm just, a, 
I just happen to be a nurse and that's what I do or whatever, you know, a little bit of background about you and then kind of roll it into your log line, which may or may not be connected to who you are and your background, then the title of your script, then your log line mm-hmm. would love for you to check out. Please let me know. And then that no attachments, send it. Um, personally, I don't super duper recommend following up on a query letter. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also wait like a month or two months to query a second time with a new idea. Don't keep sending that. I have someone who sends me the same idea every three months. Hmm. Every three months, like clockwork, they send me the same idea over and over and over and over. That's a great way to get yourself blocked, hmm. you know? Because, like, I it wasn't for me nine months ago. It's not for me now. Um, so, you know, um, I think be polite in that sense. But, uh, yeah, and then you don't need to follow up. If someone does request your screenplay, I think it's perfectly fine to follow up at the two-week mark or the three-week mark. You know, I've actually been kind of slow in my reading lately just because I've been traveling, I've had family in town, all this kind of stuff. So someone reminded me like, oh, by the way, I'm talking to another rap. And by the way, you know, this, it's like, actually great. I'm going to, I'll read your screenplay tonight. I'm sorry it's taking me so long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like, I think a reminder within like two, three week period, totally fine. Um, yeah, that's kind of it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Michael Smith, if in addition to screenplays, a writer client of yours has ideas for theater plays, would you expect to be involved in the development and sales processes of those? Nope. I don't know that world at all. Yep. Um, let's see here. Jack Cross, how would you handle writing teams? Do you sign both as a team if both would consider working on individual projects in the future? This kind of goes back to the whole writing thing. Yeah. I said writing teams is for people who write together and then their goal is to make a living writing together. Your goal is not to make a living writing together, then I have no interest in signing you. Right. The old-fashioned paper teams, right? Yeah, um, forget that. Uh, let's see here. What would be your thoughts on an entrepreneurial-minded client establishing a second career that is unrelated to screenwriting? Let's say they wanted to open a chain of restaurants would you be disinclined to rep such a writer, preferring instead to represent someone focused solely on writing? Yes. It is hard enough to open a chain of restaurants, let alone trying to be a screenwriter at the same time. And conversely, it's hard enough to be a screenwriter, let alone trying to open a chain of restaurants at the same time. Right. Uh, let's see here. Aman Holly, is there anything you or the writer's agent can do to increase the chance of a project actually being made, not just sold? Does packaging help? I mean, it helps, but the me or the agent can't make the client like it, you know, no matter what agencies might tell you in their signing meetings. Um, we can get it to them or get it to their representation, but if it's good, if it's either good or it's not, you know, mm-hmm. we can't do anything, you know, it, it's all about str- what we can do is have st- be like, hey, you know what? This might be great for this actor. I've heard they're looking for something, and you're not aware of that. And so let me go to that person. But like, you're like, oh, this might be good for The Rock. Well, fuck, everything's good for The Rock, right? You know? Um, but you're <laughs> like, oh, this might be good for this, you know, for Susan Sarandon's always wanted to do a TV show. Okay, that's really smart. Actually, that's an interesting idea. We should, you know, but she wasn't already doing Monarch, right? Um, right, right. But you take my point, which is like, you know. We, you, we can usually think of uh, an intelligent idea or something, but that's what the length that we can kind of do. You know, we cannot, we can't, it's about strategy and knowing who to go to. Mm-hmm. And so we're not influencing anything by the sheer um, weight of our like reputation. But what we can do is be smart about the people we go to and how we put it in front of them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, let's see here. Joanne L. Sound, sh should sounds be capitalized? Uh, it, I mean, this it goes back to the capitalization. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends, but traditionally, uh, sounds are capitalized. Like, like the door blows up or something like that. Just so you know, it everyone. just depends if you're like, yeah. if it's, I don't know depends yeah i mean i think traditionally in a production script it would just to make it easy for the sound department but i mean if you're writing it for you know so far for off. readers yeah i think it's it's probably you know at your own uh if it if it helps the reader if it's like if it, you're writing an action script then maybe if it if it definitely helps in terms of add the intensity of the scene sure but um yeah anyway let's see here uh ash uh, P.S. Are we certain the unsolicited script was not a prank from Ian Shore? That... Yes. I know exactly <laughs> who the script was written by. I mean, the person put their fucking name all over it. So, yeah. uh, and it wasn't Sheehan or... Ian, Ian would be much more hilarious about his prank. Right. Trust me. Yeah. And he'd be hiding in the bushes at, at the same time or something. Yeah. Or, or he'd, like, he'd be like playing his DJ mix or something. Right. <laughs> Yeah, would you say it would be it would have been a lot funnier if Ian had been involved. <laughs> uh, would, if this was very mundane in its like bizarreness. Gotcha. East Coast Grinder. As someone who uh, read a lot of log lines for a living, what do you notice that good long lines have that bad ones are missing? Contradictions mm -hmm. in them, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, remember the log line for Headhunter? It said something to the effect of. You know, a headhunter, guy, a cannibal who eats people for a living, is troubled when he comes across a man who wants to be eaten. Right. It's like, oh, that's interesting. He wants to be eaten. You know, or like when we took out Eli, which to be fair, that's not a logline. I came across this logline I designed with the client. Mm -hmm. It was like a little boy is trapped in a haunted house, but because he has an autoimmune disorder, if he leaves, he'll be killed. Mm. But if he stays, he'll also die. You know, and so like if there's like this kind of contradictory nature to it, yeah, that's automatically kind of interesting to it. Sure. You know? And so a lot of times that's what it is, is it it's almost like a mystery that needs to be solved. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're like, oh shit, I need to read it's kind of like reading the back of a novel, right? And the back of a novel is usually like this is this, this is, but it but things are not exactly what they seem mm -hmm. here at the manor or whatever. Right. You know, right. and like it should draw you in that sense. And a lot of times what it is is a, is a contradiction do you know what i'm saying these are people who live forever and suddenly they're being killed mm -hmm. okay how's that possible right you know and so it either gives you the promise of something or the mystery of something mm -hmm. you know but a lot of times and i think honestly save the cat speaks to this if i recall correctly i haven't read in like 20 years but i think it talks about the logline can oftentimes have a conflict within it you know mm -hmm. uh, you know a man who fights fires for a living is secretly an arsonist or some shit like that right, right like right. you're like oh that's crazy that's weird you know it's the last person you'd expect to be this or that you know mm -hmm. uh let's see here uh miguel gastilum hopefully pronounce your name right miguel um hello i have one question i am from mexico and want to know how hard it will be to get representation i don't have a working permit since i don't have a green card or can I only sell spec scripts if I'm able to work in the U.S.? Thank you so much. You can. I'm pretty sure you can still sell a spec. In terms of working, I don't honestly know the answers to that question. Mm -hmm. um, that's not a question I would. I would. I, I know the answer to. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, yeah, I don't know either. But I would assume that there would be some sort of possibility of a work visa if 
you know, a studio or production company, you know. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure system. I'm sure it could get worked out if there was yeah. enough money involved. Right. Yeah, exactly. If there were money involved in a studio or network, somebody involved, an entertainment attorney, that kind of thing. I think bu the, buying a spec from you wouldn't be a problem. I think because buying is like buying a screenplay is like buying property. It essentially oh, yeah. is property, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So they can buy property for you. It's when you get into the work, the ongoing work of rewriting sure. assignments and things like that. That's where you get into like a visa situation. Right. I wonder how that would work if the writer were writing remotely from Mexico. I mean, it would still be it would still require a work visa because yeah. the money's coming from America to Mexico. Hmm. Okay. I think. Again, I'm not an immigration. Yeah, I don't know. Lawyer, so. Yeah, I mean that makes sense, but yeah, I don't know. What's well, a U.S. corporation paying a Mexican national? Right. Huh. Okay. Uh, let's see here. East Coast Grinder with the success of Squid Game, do you see the market more open toward uh, non-U.S. based stories? Sure. I don't know. I mean, the problem with Squid Game is it was produced locally. <clears throat> it wasn't like it wasn't like Netflix in L.A. got that pitch and greenlit it. Mm. It was produced by, out of Netflix Korea, I believe. Mm, yeah. like they greenlit it locally. Yeah. So I think it just took off. Is, yeah. Yeah. The thing is, like, it's kind of like, you know, with the success of the crown, with the crown is the crown, I think, was so expensive. That I can't run through. It's like I'm trying to think of like a, another show or like Borgen or something, you know, it's like those shows are produced like Downton Abbey was a BBC production, you right. know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's like those, it's, it's hard to like, I'll put it like this. I don't think, um, you know, if you have a big, if you're a big Korean creator, you're going to go to Netflix's Korea office. You're not going to fly to LA or do a remote zoom for a pitch necessarily. Right. And so I think that, I think what it, if anything, what it's made people do is look into, into international um, formats and international television and realizing that they can really transcend the language barrier. Yeah, no, that's smart. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matthew Yanggu, uh, basic ask query question, but beyond the pitch specific to a project, what other things do you respond to most in an initial query email? That's a good, I mean, that's, that's a good question. I mean, look, honestly, um, familiarity with the company is a plus, mm -hmm. although not, not a necessity. Um, an interesting background is always a plus especially if it has some relation to the actual concept involved. I was give the example of like, I used to be a US, you know, a military sniper. And now I have written a screenplay about a sniper. And you're like, okay, well, shit, I know you're running from a place of, of verisimilitude, you know, right, right. but you don't have to be, it's not required. You know, the guy who wrote American Sniper wasn't a sniper, right. but like, it's always interesting. It's part of a narrative that I can tell people. I'm like, Hey, this guy used to be a sniper and therefore he's writing about this, mm -hmm. but you don't even have to write about that. Like, if you're used to be a, 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 you know, in the military, theoretically, people will just assume whether it's correct or not that you're like you're anything to do with the military is going to be more accurate, you know, or even sure. action stuff. But it's not required. I mean, I don't think I'd be surprised. Like I know David Ayer used to be um, a submariner, but that doesn't mean that made his made like any of the LAPD stuff more accurate per se. He might have a certain understanding of certain culture um, in training days. What I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you have an interesting background, that's always helpful, but look, I would put it like this. If you have a great logline, I don't care about your background and I don't care if you like, you know, addressed it to me, but if you address it to me and you've an interesting background and your logline is like 75%, that might tip it to 80 and get me to read it. Oh, I see. Huh. 
Susan Connolly asks, uh, picking up on the Lady Bird and boring detective show comments, is there a way to do a good logline for an execution-dependent script? Got to make it interesting. Yeah. Part of that writing process. I know that's like very flip, but it's true, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You got to dig into the thing that makes this. People are like, oh, well, you know, here's my question. Like to all these people who are like, well, I don't know how to write a log line. I'm like, well, how do you think the marketing department's going to sell your movie exactly mm. when they have like a poster yeah. or a 15 second ad? Right. Right. Like they got to figure out a way to do that. Right. So figure you better out. figure out the concept that makes it, you know, makes people interesting. Right. People interested in it. And if you can't, maybe there's a flaw in your script somewhere. Possibly. Um, Let's see here. Taylor made stories. Two questions, sort of an unrelated, sort of unrelated. One, as an aspiring TV writer, is it a good idea to develop one of my pilots as a web series? And two, is it wise for emerging writers to develop projects with other people for film or TV without wanting to be writing partners, like co-creating a series but writing separately? I don't think the web series thing is a good use of your time, in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Some people might disagree with me, but like if you're making something, it's going to make you a better writer. I don't know. It's such to make a good web series requires so much money and time that I personally don't see that advancing your career in a significant way. If you're purely focused on writing, Mm -hmm. if you're focused, if you want to be a director, direct things. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a writer, write things. I personally am not a big fan of web series and nobody wants to watch them. I rarely met, you know, there, there are big successes like insecure um, high maintenance that come out of that but those successes were a long time ago mm-hmm. you know um so you know i personally don't think the web series thing again we're going back to the whole i want to write with somebody else but i don't write them full time i feel like that comes a little bit out of like this kind of like pre-wj uh, pre-wj world of like i just want to write with a friend and like we're gonna do something mm-hmm. cool and fun but like that you're not thinking like a professional mm-hmm. it just doesn't it's not interesting to other people like how do i sell someone if they don't and I always tell a screenplay about a writing team and get them more work if they don't want to write together going forward. Right, What's the right. point in it? You mm-hmm. know, you have to think, how am I making myself more saleable? How am I building up my brand? You know? Right. It's like weird. It's like there's this line in succession a couple episodes ago where they're like, you have to think about every single move. How How is this advancing my personal agenda? And you have to think about it that way. And I know people are like, well, I'm an artist. I just write the things that are compelled to me. And that's fine. But don't be surprised if when you do that, that the marketplace responds with a shrug. Sometimes it might respond and be like, this is amazing. You've cracked the code. You did the thing nobody else wanted to do. But they also might just be like, hey, like, I don't know how to make any money from this. So, or I don't know how to, you know, I don't know that how this makes sense as a long-term thing. Mm-hmm. Let's see here. Uh, Mark Aurelius is back. I think opinions vary wildly on this, but do you think contests are still worth it? Should I be spending my money entering final draft, launching pads, green craft, or just Nickel and Austin? Uh, I mean, it just varies in the contest. You know, like I read for Screencraft. I read for Austin. I read for Page, Final Draft, and Script Pipeline. So mm-hmm. I get, you know, I certainly will take that stuff seriously and read, you know, the pe- the winners that are interesting to me. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I would just focus on the ones that are worthwhile to you. I personally haven't found the Nickels super duper useful. Because the kind of things, scripts they focus on are not the kind of scripts that I am drawn towards personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, you know, there have been some really successful Nichols winners, like my old bosses, Andrew Marlon, Terry Miller, and other people. But 
you look at the last five, six years, I wonder how many of those people are still working writers um, because they tend to focus more on, um, you know, small character dramas and things like that, which is cool. It's kind of like Sundance, but the same end, that's not really the kind of stuff that, that has been, you know, really tracking in the marketplace. Um, so for me, Austin or, you know, script pipeline or, or screen craft or final mm -hmm. draft or whatever have been more interesting because they're not as they're a little bit more oriented towards commercial material you know like i don't i you know like with nickel i don't know if a horror script has ever won in a nickel like it's yeah. not like really their thing right so right like, um it's it's not more there are exceptions and there have been exceptions in the previous years that commercially oriented scripts have won there but those are the exceptions not the rules in my experience so as a result i focus more on other they also only have like five, they have 10 finalists, five winners, whereas something like Austin, you know, um, they have a horror category, they have mm -hmm. a thriller category, they have different categories. So that makes it easier for me to focus on the things um, that are interesting to me. Right. That makes sense. Um, so we're at 90 minutes, a little over 90 minutes. You still got a few more in you? I do. I do. I have a, I have a, I have a call. I have a company weekend, weekend read call at six o'clock. So, okay. So we'll, we'll uh, wrap it up. Here. More a few more questions here. Um, uh, oh, here, Daniel Seco. <laughs> I'm Dan Seco. Oh, shit. What's Dan got for me? Is it my home address? How does a writer get a script on the blacklist? Since you've Come on, Dan. Dan knows this. Dan just wants me to give away all my secrets. <laughs> Firstly, what you do is you send me $3,000. <laughs> and then uh, I give away $1 to 3,000 people. Um, it's so funny. So Dan uh, knows all this. So right. he just wants me to put it out there. And look, the way that I, I actually was thinking, I was like, someone's going to ask me this. And I had not expected to be Dan. <laughs> but, um, you know, how I have kind of gotten scripts in the blacklist is I look for screenplays that I think are amazing. I sign those writers um, or I'm already working with those writers and we take those scripts out. I try to take them out near the end of the year, mm. September, October, um, not November. It's too late then. Um, the ballots tend to go out roughly around right now. Um, uh, and so what I try to do is get, I get the scripts to like 70, 80 times over a hundred people. Um, and hopefully people really like them. Um, and if people really like them, I set meetings for them with those writers. And then the day that the ballots go out, I email um, all the executives who read the script and liked it. Uh, and I say, hey, just a reminder, you really liked this screenplay. Now the blacklist ballots are out. You know, um, you know, just, just wanted to remind you about it. Just a reminder. And that's it. Mm -hmm. That's all the work I do. And so essentially, it is a lot of build up to one day of me writing an email saying, hey, remember, you read the script and hopefully you met with that person and you liked them. Just a reminder, you know, because most executives don't remember what they read like two days sure, ago. Sure, right. And so it's a nice little reminder of like, hey, remember you met this person three weeks ago, which is also why I take up the more blacklisty scripts in September, October, which is kind of like with the Academy, like, if you have an Academy right. Award, like best contender, if you King Richard, you don't put it out in, in like June, you put it out in November, December, mm -hmm. it's really close to the balloting and people will remember, oh, I just saw King Richard, you know, three weeks ago. That's a great movie. I should vote for that. Right. You know, um, you know, if I took out a script in January or February, it's going to be hard for people to remember that. It feels so long ago to them. Mm -hmm. um, so now look, there are exceptions if a screenplay sells for a significant amount of money. Um, often that is enough for people to, to have read it and remembered it. Sure. Um, but you know, more often than not, it's screenplays that in my experience go out in like September, October. Um, and also it's a certain kind of screenplay, you know, it's a screenplay that feels unique, um, that feels buzzy, um, that feels interesting to read, you mm -hmm. know, um, the, the commercial scripts that do sell, they often make the list 
as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it tends to be kind of more, I wouldn't call them, I guess, Sundancey biopics, um, really out there concepts, um, things that are polarizing occasionally, things that you'll either love it or you hate it, but the people who love it really love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how it tends to go. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Olson, in a cold message reaching out to lit reps, I guess a cold query, how do I mention that I've had the chance to sell a spec script to a well-known producer, have a project at uh, Gramnet Productions, etc. without Kelsey sound- Grammer's company. Oh, okay, there you go. Without sounding like a liar. I mean, I would just mention it, yeah. but I mean... It sounds, you know, if it was a while ago, that might in its own way be a bit of a red flag. Mm. People are like, well, you sold a screenplay 10 years ago or five years ago and nothing's happened since. Right. You know? Um, So, I mean, look, I think it's something you can mention. I don't know how you, you're not going to sound like a liar. I mean, where people sound like liars to me, liars is is a hard term. Mm. When people sound a little like, like embellishing things is when they're like to a big producer for a lot of money. And I'm like, okay, well, who is it and what? And they're like, well, it was for like, you know, a thousand dollars to like this person you've never heard of. I'm like, okay, right. You use the people's names and be like, you know, back in the day I did blankety blank and blankety blank. And maybe you address the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a, you know, a family issue or something like that, or like, you know, nothing came out of that or whatever, you know, you can, you can mention it, but um, at the same end, I think, you know, I just be straightforward about it and give people as much detail in, in a short way as possible. I sold a screenplay or I sold a pilot called, you know, the day after to, to Bill Blah at, at Gramnet Productions back in 2015. Unfortunately, it didn't go to the past pilot, but mm-hmm. it was a great experience. I've been focused on something else since then. So here's my new thing. Right. Gotcha. Let's see here. Uh, Jacob Bofferding says, IP question, what guidance would you give a writer who wants to collaborate with an artist to develop their screenplay in another medium? Any clients go this route? Any legal contract suggestions? That's a lawyer question. And in terms of other mediums, I don't know what medium you're referring to. I'm guessing comic books. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. I've never had any clients do it. I mean, I've had clients... I've had clients who worked in comics, but they were comic book writers and artists who were in that world. Right. So it's a very, it's completely different. It's a, that's a legal thing. So I haven't had clients try to turn their screenplays into comics. It's, it seems cool, but it takes like years. Right. So it can be a quite a time consuming process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and expensive. Uh, yes. Taylor made stories. Uh, do uh, MA agents put their television clients up for jobs or development digital spaces like Facebook watch Tubi, etc. Do they focus on the major networks and streamers? They put them all. I mean, I don't think Facebook watch exists anymore. Hmm. I don't know that Tubi's buying anything. So I, but I assume you're referring to like kind of Quibi back in the day or something, but no, they sure. put People put it anyway, any, anytime one of those companies pops up, all these agents have meetings with all the people there and they say, what are you looking for? And they tell them and they send over a boatload of, of writers and scripts. So any, any way an agency can make money, they are out there trying to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Susan Connolly, would you have large concerns about repping a client who is not based in the U.S.? I wouldn't say large concerns, mm-hmm. but it would definitely be something you'd be aware of. I think for TV, it would be 
that, that would be a very big concern for a TV client, sure. honestly. Um, uh, for features, not as much, really. I think for TV, it would be a concern. For features, not as much, especially not in the current moment right now. Um, but in, fe- in a normal world, uh, for features, I would say you'd have to fly in like two, three times a year. But right now, no worries. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Aman Haley says, Susan, John also has a client in Belgium. You have a client in Belgium? Oh, there you go. Julian, Julian Dolandre. Yeah. I probably pronounced his name poorly, improperly. Um, Joanne L. John, my TV pilot made top 10 finals in Page Awards in 2020. Any idea why no one reached out to me to read it? Because there's a lot of finalists mm. and there's a lot of competitions. I mean, that's kind of your job to reach out to other people and let them know about it. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if people are like, okay, cool. You know, because it's not about being a finalist. It's about having a logline that's interesting to them. Mm. And the yeah, like, the finalist just sort of opens up the people who are noticing. People the will be like, line. oh, people might be like, oh, like yeah, it might be like, you know, subject line, twenty twenty, you know, TV finalist, top ten finalist at right. page, mm-hmm. and then the comment is, hi, blah, 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 you know, here's my logline. If the logline's not cool, it doesn't matter, because <laughs> right. also there were like ten other finalists, right? Right. And then there's all the other, there's ten other drama finals, and there's ten, and there's the winners, and then yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot of people out there, you know, and there's a lot of competitions. You know, yeah. Uh, Dan Seiko, thanks, John. Much appreciated. You know, I'm a little disappointed that Ian Shore didn't show up. You brought out Jonathan Stokes. You brought out Dan Seiko. Um, I know. You know, Ian didn't show up. You know, Scott no, Carr didn't show he, up. You know, I think he's like somewhere. I, judging from his Instagram, he's yeah. like somewhere very glamorous right oh, now. Of course. Of course. Um, so uh, I don't. I know. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll. We can. We'll. We'll. we'll uh, are you going to still have your end of the year? Uh, you know, all the do the all the end of the year fun thing that you sometimes we do. we might we might I'm still kind of toying with it. Yeah, you want to? Uh, I was you, a lot of fun last year. Yeah. Okay. Well, then. Yeah. We'll we'll figure something out. We definitely want to do that. That's just my thinking. I mean, I, you're yeah. the guy who has to go and do and do all this awesome stuff for the community. Like I mean, you, you so. bring them out though. I'll just bring, invite you, and they'll all show up. And then we'll just I do mean, it I can certainly make it a very Bell of You uh, holiday thing yeah. to bring out like a bunch of. Uh, I think it might be fun. Uh, well, we'll talk about this offline. Okay. There's some fun good. stuff we could do. Um, let's see here. Jerry RPG. Hello. When is the best time to send queries? Uh, uh, um, uh, when is the best time ever? Mm-hmm. Um, February, March, April, September, or October. Okay. There you go. There you go. Also, during workday would be nice. Right. Right. Um, okay, so uh, let's see here. Uh, Dan Seiko's down. Okay, so we'll have to invite Dan, too. Um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, one other person here. Uh, what is... Uh, where is it? I just lost it. Uh, oh, uh, Carlos Saras says, I'm sorry, but what is hip-pocketing? Hip-pocketing is when you're like, not really repping a person, but you like, you're like, essentially, and it's kind of weird because I don't really do it much, but you essentially are taking out their scripts to see if anyone can sell them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're kind of doing like the bare minimum, which is you're going to take out a script of theirs to maybe not even a lot of people and see if anyone wants to do anything with it. And if they don't, then you're kind of like done. 
right? Like yeah. fully repping a client is like, okay, I'm gonna take the script out to as many people as possible. Then I'm gonna work on a new script with you. And then we're gonna do a strategy. We're gonna make sure there's a lot of meetings, et cetera. We're, like we're fully engaged. Hitpocketing is I'm gonna like take this out. I'm gonna take a flyer on you and see what happens. If, if it's a positive response, then you might move up to full client. If it's a negative response, well then, sorry, you know. Right. We tried. Right. Yeah, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, like you can, junior reps and and a lot of even assistants you know agent trainees at different companies will will hit pocket some people from time people to time. who don't have a lot because those people don't have a full-time job doing assistant and other coordinator stuff they don't have the, the bandwidth to be like full court press for a client so they're yeah. like look let's try something together and see if it works it's kind of like uh going maybe i'm going steady it's kind of like you know like uh fuck buddies i guess like, Let's see who, fucks out. who can say right could become an all-time could be a one could be a one-off could be like you know uh, an ongoing thing right uh michael gastellum uh one last question that uh what would interest john in a query uh if it's a genre that he hasn't done much of what is his favorite genre to rep Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, look, it's always just, you know, interesting. I would say, you know, the genre that I've done a lot in and that always is popular is thriller horror, I would mm. say. Um, that said, everyone's like, well, horror movies are so, they're really hard to write a good horror movie. But if you can find really a way into doing a really smart horror film, which mm -hmm. everyone wants, but it's really hard to do, then I think that's pretty special. So, but you really have to find a way to do thriller horror in a unique, you know, elevated way that you know people don't necessarily always see so that that's definitely the thing that i get asked for the most is stuff like that yeah. um but it's a it is a big case of easier said than done um because uh horror movies are deceptively difficult because they seem easy but making it feel different in a, in a very crowded marketplace is right absolutely uh, so thanks, John, for coming on. We'll have to talk about uh, this holiday get-together of some sort. Yeah. Um, so be sure to follow John on Twitter because he is uh, blue check verified. He's special. Um, it's at John Zazerny, uh, and he has lots of great info uh, all the time, great takes and things like that. Uh, follow Dan Seco, too. Um, and be sure not to mail him packages to his unlisted home address if you found it. Don't do that, nor do, nor show up to uninvited to his home or office space. That's not good. Um, Dan doesn't mind it, though. Dan Seiko's okay with it. I'm just kidding. Don't do that for Dan, either. Um, and as a reminder, we're back next, or this coming Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific uh, with the Goldbergs writer at Deep Desai. So we'll see you then. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and have a great and productive week, everyone. <laughs>